Welcome, Dr. Courtney Crisp, to the Ola Guapa podcast. Dr. Courtney is not only a therapist, writer, editor, and speaker, but she is also my former neighbor based in San Diego, California. Today's episode is so important because together we sit down and dive deep into topics like the importance of mental health and wellness in the creative community, eating disorders, and her personal career trajectory and niching down to become the therapist she is today. So if you're a lover of the arts but find yourself interested in pursuing a more traditional path, or you'd just like to learn more about the why behind mental health and eating disorders, then this is the conversation for you. And with that, let's get into the episode. Yeah, so hi guys, my name's um, Dr. Courtney Crisp. So I'm a therapist. Um, Right now I work mostly with patients with eating disorders. I work um, at a major medical center in the Bay Area. I also, I'm also a writer and an editor, so I do those kind of things on the side. I'm also starting to dabble into some speaking and, um, and things like that. So, yeah. Love it. And for a little context for our audience too, you and I actually used to be neighbors in San Diego. So that's how we connected. And I know you're, you know, a huge lover of the creative community and started following Ola Guapa and actually attended some of the Ola Guapa events back in the day, the OG events. (laughs) (laughs) I did. They were so fun. You know, Nisha, it's funny. I've never told you the story, but I was like, I'm going to tell her today. But, um, the when before you moved in I was just like in my second year of grad school and like just kind of miserable and like just trying to get through it and it's grad school so tough especially for like I don't know professions where there's like a clinical element because you're just you're going to class and you're doing your clinicals you just you don't have a lot of time and I was like oh I like want more creativity in my life and then you moved in downstairs and I was like (laughs) oh my gosh she's she's like marbling dog leashes this is so fun (laughs) Yes, yes. Back in the day, I was marbling dog leashes, marbling probably everything I could dip in a marbling bucket. Um, And I remember we did like some vision board parties and you were always just game to show up and share your knowledge. And I think, you know, you've advanced so much in your professional career since then, moved to San Francisco. So I'd love to start at the beginning and just kind of understand like what was there a moment in time where you can remember like kind of first embarking on this journey in regards to therapy, right? Like, were you always that yeah. friend that people went to? How did it all start for you? Y- yes, definitely. <laughs> to answer that, uh, that question of like, was I always the friend that um, I think I've always honestly been more of like a listener than a talker. Like I was always really, really shy. Um, and I was always really just observant of everything. So I think and I also, I moved around a lot as a kid. I don't know. I, you probably don't know that about me, but um, I lived in like five states and like wow. 13 cities or something like that growing wow. up. Yes. I was always, yes. I was always used to having to like make new friends and like learn how to fit in. And like, I think um, uh, tracing that back, I just really, I kind of learned to do that through like observing people and listening. Cause I had to kind of pick up on social cues and figure out like how, how to like make friends. So I think, yeah. Um, and then my interest in eating disorders, I think started more in like high school and junior high. Like I was always really into sports and, um, and I think, so I saw, I saw like on the one hand, how like, um, in sports, the relationship between like your physical and your mental health could be really positive and sports could be like really empowering, but then also how it could be really like toxic if you're like, you know, trying to have a certain body type or, um, 
you know, I think, I think sports can be both really positive for body image, but also detrimental, like Mm -hmm. depending on the situation. So I think I could uh, probably trace my interest in eating disorders back to that. So that's super fascinating. Definitely want to unpack that a little bit more. Um, But first I kind of want to get into like, okay, so what was your journey with education? Like, so you kind of already had this, you know, innate listening ability and kind of where was that friend that everybody would go to if they were having a problem or concern and then moving around a lot. How did you start to figure out, okay, I can make a career of this? So I, I remember I, so I graduated in 2011, which, um, which I don't know if you remember, but it was like a really bad recession. Like the, mm-hmm. so I, I just remember like, I just remember graduating college and like everyone was having a really hard time finding a job. So I moved, um, moved back in with my parents and my, my, so my parents own a business and I was working for them for a while, like while I kind of figured out what I wanted to do. Um, and so I was working in sales for them which my parents are like natural born salespeople. They're like really good at it. And it's not, I, I, I kind of learned how to do it, but it's not, I would say my like top strength. Um, so I was just, but I did notice like I, what I really enjoyed about sales was like the, um, like connecting with people and like building rapport really quickly. And like, you know, I would always do things like, you know, if you go into someone's office, like I would just comment on things they had on their wall and, um, like try to engage them with their interests and things like that. And I just, I just noticed, I was like, yeah, like I, you know, I'm really, I really enjoy like building these connections and like the kind of the sales part of it is harder for me, you know, the like kind of having to uh, like push things or whatever. But I I was like, yeah, I think, you know, I really do enjoy this, like connecting with people. And I noticed that people just like kind of naturally opened up to me, even just in that role of sales. Like I noticed people just kind of told me their problems and I, yeah, um, (laughs) I I might as well get paid for this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Awesome. And kind of after that role with your parents, how did you transition into, um, you know, your, the career path that you're on today? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. So my undergrad degree was actually in English. Um, and I always wanted to write, but I wasn't like quite sure what that would look like in terms of practically. Cause I was also like, okay, I need to like, you know, pay rent too. So, um, and, uh, yeah. So then when I was like, okay, I think I want to be a therapist and go back to school and like, hopefully I can write on the side. Like that was kind of always my thinking. Um, I was like, okay, should I do the master's or the doctorate? But the, the tricky part was like, it's, it can be really hard to get into doctorate programs for psychology. And I was kind of coming into it without an undergrad degree in psychology, which like most people are like, most people kind of come into it being like, okay, I want to get a doctorate. I'm going to get my undergrad degree in psychology and kind of go on this journey. So um, so I was like, okay, I probably have to get a master's degree first. And at the time I was thinking, okay, like if maybe if I like it, I can just stop there. I'll do like a MFT or MSW, which are, um, marriage and family therapists or, ma- or uh, masters of social work and which are both, you know, great degrees in both those, um, uh, both of those, you know, degrees have their own kind of strengths and focuses. Um, but I've just, you know, I've always really liked school and I've always really liked, um, kind of the academic part of psychology too. So that's kind of why I was thinking long-term I wanted to get the doctorate. So um, yeah, so then I started in um, Pepperdine's MFT program, which they, I was still living at home and I started working. um, I started working as like a, more of like a guidance counselor role because I was trying to get like close to clinical experience, but I wasn't like 
quite getting that yet. So I, I started working. It was, I was like helping kids apply to um, like apply to college and like write their essays for getting into college. So it was kind of like using my English skills. Um, that was like my transition job, I feel like. So I did that when I was in school, getting my master's program. Um, yeah. And then, and then, yeah, I graduated and I was like, okay, I think I want to still go for the doctorate. And I was like, all right, I need to get more research and clinical experience. Um, so yeah, I worked at a eating disorders residential treatment center for two years. Um, and that was really great. And then I also worked in research at Stanford. So, um, which I also really liked, we were looking at like, I think that was like a pharmaceutical study. So we were looking at, um, the effects of this, uh, pharmaceutical drug on like binge eating and bulimia. Um, so yeah, cause I, I was like, okay, like I'm done with my master's. I know I need to get like a little bit more clinical and research experience. So let me like, just really focus on what I thought I wanted to do, which was work with eating disorders. Um, yeah. So that was, so then I got that experience and applied to the doctoral programs. And I actually, there was a, it was a couple years of applying, which is a whole nother thing. So it was kind of, it was a long road. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like a long road. It sounds like, you know, so many decisions made along the way and you kind of just keep getting closer and closer and finding your thing. I yeah. think with like a, a typical creative career, what I hear a lot is like, there's so many pivots along the way and this yeah. feels much more like a linear path. Can you speak about that a little bit? Did you, mm. did you feel the same way? Did you feel like maybe you were kind of changing direction along, along the course or what was your experience yeah. like? Yeah, that's so funny. You see it as linear because it like doesn't feel linear to me at all. Right. It never <laughs> but, does. Um, yeah, I know. Maybe it's more like looking back that I can more like see the see the path. But no, I mean, I guess, yeah, compared to like um, compared to like a, a, a more like like creative profession, I think I think there's definitely more of like a path laid out. But um yeah, but there's so many different options along the way too. Cause I was like, okay, do I want to do the master's program or the doctorate or do I like, how, and even now it's like, how much do I want to practice versus like, I got the doctorate to have more options, but now it's kind of like, okay, how do I want to build my career? Like, do I want to do all clinical? Do I want to do research clinical and teach? Like, do I want to do these like creative things too? Cause like right now I've been doing a lot of like writing, which I've been really enjoying. So, um, yeah, I feel like even though it's kind of, there is kind of a linear path to like getting the degree and there's certain things you have to do. Like part of the reason I, I did want to get the doctorate was to like have more options so I could have more like flexibility with like building my day to day. So that's so that cool sense. because I never knew yeah. that, you know, even <laughs> though like maybe from the outside perspective looking in, it might feel like, you know, okay, first you do this, then you do this, then you do this. But really like yeah. all those options along the way really are kind of like building blocks. And I think, you know, even, even at the stage that you're at now, I didn't realize that you would have so many options in front of you and leveraging yeah. your passion for writing paired with therapy and all of your degrees and experience and knowledge can be so powerful. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, um, that's a really great point. I, yeah, no, I, um, uh, I've always wanted to like, do writing along with psychology, but I was kind of like figuring out how to, how to do that along the yeah. way. Um, yeah, but I think, I think after like going through grad school and like, um, becoming more of like 
I don't want to say like an expert, but becoming more of like a mental health, like someone that feels qualified to like talk on mental health topics. Um, yeah, I just, I think it's, it's been a great opportunity to be able to like write articles and like speak on mental health issues, um, in, in a, um, yeah, in a way that's both like creative to me, but I also try to always like do things that I feel like will like help, you know, the general public or help hopefully somebody who's reading it. So that's really, um, behind a lot of what I want to do with writing too, is just, you know, um, cause there's, there's so it, it's, it's hard for like a lay person or someone that hasn't been through like a lot of school to like understand like this, like psych research, you know? So I think mm-hmm. that's one of, um, that's one of the things I've always wanted to bridge with my writing is like, okay, how can I make like findings in psych research or like summaries of psych research? Like, how can I make that like, like, accessible you know for right. like the average person reading it because there's it's, it's hard like I think it's really hard if you um you know to, to wade through things on the internet and be like is this real is this real 100 like, percent yeah so a hundred percent and I think that you know mental health is is definitely like at the forefront mm-hmm. of a lot of conversation right now especially as it pertains to you know like you say the internet or social media and I think there's like so much information and yeah I guess my question would be, what would be things that, that like, as our audience would look out for to know that it's, you know, written by somebody legit? Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I think it's good if someone is like, if someone is like saying they're a therapist or speaking out on mental health issues, like to kind of either like make sure they're licensed or, um, so that would either be like a PsyD, a PhD, um, an MFT or an MSW. Um, and again, someone with a license could be saying unethical things, but I will like, once we get licensed, we have like an ethics board we have to report to. So just, I think those odds are like a little bit lower that, you know, that they'd be saying things that are, um, unethical, although I'm sure it happens. Um, yeah. And then just, just kind of knowing the difference too, I think is important. There's like, you know, there's life coaches out there, which I think, you know, no, no shade to life coaches. I think that they can be super helpful. And like, I think every kind of professional has their place, but they're, they're not licensed. So I think it's important for people to know, like, okay, a coach might be helpful for more of like coaching things, but maybe not so much for like specific, like clinical therapy advice, you know, like with them. So just kind of knowing, like, I feel like being an informed consumer is like Yeah, I think helpful. that's super helpful because it there is so much information out there and there's so much misinformation out there. And I think to your point, like, you know, no shade, no kind of hate or shade to life coaches, but anybody can call themselves a life coach. So you really have right, to make right. sure you're qualifying the source no matter what you're reading and, and what kind of information you're intaking, especially as it pertains to mental health. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, one thing too, like when I post, um, I just started getting into like making carousels on Instagram, which is really fun Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> for different mental health things. But I really try to make sure like I post, um, like if I'm ever seeing a fact or like referencing research, like I'm always posting a citation so people can like follow it. So that could be something to look for too, especially if people are like, posting research claims like I would just kind of always be like okay like where is where is this source coming from Mm -hmm. like is it is this like a legit research article or is this like a website that looks kind of sketchy you know absolutely um I am curious about your 
um, specialty with eating disorders. Yeah. What is the most kind of common theme that you see with a patient that might come to you with an eating disorder? Is there something that, you know, is kind of a consistent theme throughout? Is it, is it often in relation to a relationship with sports? Is it an underlying issue that might be coming from something else? Is it, is it about the food? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I'd say, um, I'd say it's really, it's different for different people, but I think like one really central theme with most eating disorders is this theme of like control. So a lot of times people will, um, you know, have like traumas in their life or stressors uh, or things will feel really out of control. And then like wanting to control their body kind of becomes this, um, this, this thing they can control in their lives. Right. Um, and so, yeah. And I, again, I don't think that's true of every eating disorder um, or every person with an eating disorder, but I think that's definitely like a central, a central theme. I think too, um, you know, the more people are exposed to like, um, uh, like dieting from a younger age or like, like poor body image, like from a younger age, like those are all risk factors for eating disorders too. Um, but, but also like, you know, just trauma is a risk factor for eating disorders. Um, like having different like layers of oppression in society is a risk factor for eating disorders. So you can almost look at the way I kind of look at eating disorders is like, it's um, you can almost think of some of the behaviors as like a maladaptive response to like life stressors. So it's like, it's like, yeah, if sometimes like if people are feeling really stressed, they'll like either restrict their food or like binge or like binge and purge. And it's kind of, um, it's, it's, it's fulfilling a need in some way. Right. So a lot of like my work with patients is like, okay, what, what need is like this behavior filling and how can we like, you know, try to do something else. Right. And talk about the layers of like how that came to happen in the first place. Got it. This might yeah. be like a totally naive question, but how hard is it? Would you consider an eating disorder a habit? Um, no, that's, no, that's a, that's a good question. Um, is it a disease? Yeah. So a lot, um, I like to say, I'm trying to come up with a better metaphor because I don't love that this metaphor has guns in it, but I like to say that like with a lot of mental health disorders, it's like nature loads the gun and nurture can pull the trigger. Right. And a lot of, um, a lot of psychological disorders have been shown to have some like biological component, um, okay. eating disorders included. So, um, I think there's definitely a genetic component to eating disorders. Um, but again, there's like that nurture component too, right. Where if, um, you know, you're exposed to stressors or if you're in a really like, you know, like certain environments are really big risk factors for eating disorders too, like, like ballet, dance, gymnastics, uh, you know, anything where there's like a lot of emphasis on like having a certain Mm -hmm. kind of body, um, the military too, actually, I used to work a lot of active duty military and they have to keep their weight down, which is actually can be a risk factor too. Mm-hmm. So I would say, I would say, yeah, if um, like just looking at the behavior, I think it can definitely become a habit, but I think there's uh, it's like so much more than that too. Cause then it, you know, um, there's, there's like all these psychological components and biological components. So. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, that metaphor makes a lot of sense to me and it kind of 
makes you feel a little less hopeless in in a sense like there's yeah. things that we can do to get ahead of it um do you are there any sort of like overarching um kind of generic tips that you would offer that you would say like if you start noticing these things maybe apply these tactics or um or habits yeah um no that's a good question i mean i would say you know I would say like, you know, with all of us, like no one's relationship with food or with their body is like perfect. Right. right. And and I like, and I like to say too, like we live in a very, very imperfect society when it comes to body image and food and things like that. But um, yeah, but I would just ask yourself, you know, with your own relationship with food and with your body, like, does it ever like stop you from doing things you want to do? Like, does it, um, yeah, because I think it's it's totally fine to have like health goals or like try to like, you know, have like a healthier balanced lifestyle. But then like, is that like, does that become super rigid and you don't feel okay, like flexibly having like a piece of cake at someone's birthday, right? Or is it like, does it become really obsessive where it's all you can think about? Does it stop you from like doing the things you want to do in your life, right? I think those are kind of the watch outs where you know that like, okay, maybe my relationship with food or with my body might be an issue when it kind of, um, I think eating disorders when, when they kind of take over, they can just make your life really isolated. If, um, if it's feeling like, um, you know, they're kind of, they're kind of taking over your life. So I think that's where it kind of becomes a watch out of like very obsessive about food or very obsessive about your body. And there's not like a lot of flexibility because that's a lot of the work I do with patients is working towards like food flexibility. Yeah. I think, I mean, you bring up so many good points. Like the first thing that comes to mind for me is I've always thought this would be such a hard thing to have to deal with because for maybe some other challenges that people might be going through some other kind of ways of coping, let's say drugs and alcohol, those things can mm-hmm. be avoided altogether. But when it comes to eating, right. we have to do it three times a day, no matter what. Um, right. yeah. So it's almost like the problem is kind of presented to you multiple times a day and you're kind of faced with this challenge multiple times a day. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. And that's what a lot of my patients say, because all of patients who have like, um, uh, we call it comorbid, um, like when you have two things at the same time. So if you have like a substance use disorder and an eating disorder, and they'll be like sober, like say from alcohol and be like, you know, it's like, you know, I never have to look at alcohol again, but I have to like deal with food, like at least three times a day. And it's so hard, you know? So I think that's a really good point. Yeah. And nobody teaches us like really how to have a relationship with food. You know, I think subconsciously we're taught, you know, like how you said, depending on how maybe our parents raised us or society, I think there's a lot of influence there, but I was never taught in class, you know, what, what a healthy relationship with food looked like. I know a lot of like our food pyramids are outdated and portions are outdated. And I think that even just from an early age, like teaching kids something that like I've heard a lot is, you know, when a little kid is saying like that they don't want to eat any more of their dinner or their food. And the parent says like, you can't get it from the table until you're done eating until your plate is clear. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. just even from an early age, like that teaches us, that you can't be rewarded to get up and and get up out of the table until you finished your food, even though you're communicating that you're no longer hungry. Right. And then, and like, I, I don't love that too, because you're basically teaching your kids to not listen to their like internal 
hunger cues too, or fullness cues. Yeah. Yeah. And we've, there's been a lot about like intuitive eating too. Is that something that you're, that you're communicating with your patients and your clients? Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually it's so fun because intuitive eating was something that like used to be more of like a niche term, like an eating disorder recovery world. Um, but now I feel like it's become so mainstream, which is amazing. Um, and I love it. Um, but yeah, no, so, so intuitive eating, like an eating disorder treatment, we like to say like all foods fit and no foods are bad foods and all foods fit in like moderation variety. And, uh, oh gosh, I forgot the third word, like flexibility. Um, so, so, um, in a lot of times patients with eating disorders, they, their relationship with food has just been so externalized. Like they're either trying to eat like the lowest calorie thing or trying to follow this really rigid diet or, um, so intuitive eating is all about like reconnecting ourselves with like our, our natural cues of like what our body wants, like, and, and really like learning how to nourish ourselves again. Right. And like trusting our hunger cues and our fullness cues, um, so that's, yeah, so that's the goal of a lot of eating disorder treatment is kind of working towards this intuitive eating and kind of learning what, like, you know, a, what a um, diet full of, like, you know, balanced nutrition looks like for you and being able to kind of, like, trust your body again, so. I love that. And I know you yeah. had touched on, um, you know, your past around sports and how that dynamic can kind of also affect um, somebody who's really young and impressionable in their relationship with food and their body. I know oftentimes like the success of winning a game can be more important than the player or the athlete taking care of their, their physical being, which seems like it shouldn't make sense. Um, can you speak a little bit about that and kind of, you know, what you were sharing, dive a little bit deeper into what you were sharing about your relationship with, with sports at an early age? Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, yeah, I think that, that's a really good question. I think um, for me, um, with like sports and nutrition, I, you know, in high school and even in college, I really didn't know like how to fuel my body properly. Like, like you said, like no one really tells you. Um, and so it's, it's really hard to learn. So I think like I, you know, in college more, more so we had more like kind of new, like nutritionists talking to us, but high school, I really didn't know like what I was doing. And like, looking back, I, I was, I think I, like with that lack of knowledge, I think I just turned a lot to like different, um, like different diets or different like things I thought I like should be doing. But I really, I think through that, like, you, you know, if you, if you're constantly turning to these like external diets, like telling you what to do or how to eat, you really like lose touch with your body's, um, with like your body's natural cues. Um, that was one thing for me. Like once I started working at eating disorder treatment, I was like, oh wow, like this is actually like really helpful for me personally, like learning how to like reconnect with your body um, and what it needs and what it wants. And, um, you know, I feel more energized when I have these foods and um, like, I really enjoy this as like my post-dinner snack and just learning the, um, because I, I had to like, I had to check like patients meals when I worked in the residential treatment center. So learning like, okay, this is kind of what like a balanced meal looks like with like starches, proteins, and fats. Like, I think that actually really helped me with like healing my own relationship with food. Yeah. It's funny. My fiance and I are, are training, (laughs) training, but we're in a program right now getting ready for our wedding. And 
what they're teaching us about, we're doing strength training. Um, and we also are working with a nutritionist who is kind of setting up some meal plans for us and helping us better understand what our body needs to reach our goals. And it is fascinating. Like I, everything that I thought I knew is completely opposite from what I'm being taught and told. And I think especially Mm -hmm. like for me, I used to think that either like in order to lose weight or, you know, have my clothes fit better, my thought process was always like eat less or eat more greens or do more cardio. Like those would be my like three go-tos. And what Mm -hmm. I'm learning now is like, you know, eating more protein and doing more strength training is, is a lot better, um, inefficiently reaching my goals. So I think like, it's also important to, and of course, like that's just me on, on my own personal scenario. But what I think is important for people to know is to really seek out professional help and guidance so that they can understand what, you know, what their goals are and really find an efficient way to get there. Because with all this information out there, it's so hard to figure out what's going to work best for you. And you're trying one thing one day and it's not working and you feel so defeated. That can also take a toll on, on negative mental health. Are there any resources or kind of maybe go-to guides or, um, just anything that we would be able to tap into, to learn a little bit more about some of these topics? Well, the book Intuitive Eating is really good. That like talks more about um, just kind of these things we've been talking about. Um, There's also a workbook. See, I literally use it for a group I teach on intuitive eating. Um, Yeah, it's the intuitive eating workbook. So 10 principles for nourishing a healthy relationship with food. Um, And yeah, I think if, if, um, oh, I didn't really mention this so much, but um, uh, so in eating disorder treatment, we really focus on this concept of like health at every size too. So we don't like, we don't focus on weight loss, like at all. We focus on, um, just like different, different metrics of health and looking at health in this more holistic way. Cause I think sometimes, um, this notion of health can be so focused and tied to weight. And a lot of times, um, for people with eating disorders or disordered eating, that's just like not helpful. So um, yeah, there's a great book called health at every size that talks about this more. Um, yeah, I'd recommend that one too. So, yeah, it's such a good point because I think you're, you're right. You know, most of the time eating disorders or health, it's, it's kind of like centered around weight loss, but there's so much more to know about even just like powering our bodies to feel energized and for like our brain function, you know, especially like whether you're working in academics or creative industry, whatever it is, I think even just like working remote for a lot of people has that's kind of taken a toll, Um, you know, like fast food and just access to getting something delivered, you know, in 15 minutes to your front door has taken a toll too. And I think that there is starting to be more conversation around how food affects like brain fog and fatigue and all these different things. But there's, I feel like there's not enough conversation around it or enough information around it. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, there's some great, um, I I really like some dietitians I follow on Instagram too. I follow mostly like anti-diet dietitians because they're, um, it's kind of what I support just in my, in my own work. So 
Um, there's this great one. Her name's uh, Vitamin Re. So her name's Maria or Marie, and she goes Vitamin Re. And she talks a lot about like anti diet, um, uh, dietitian kind of stuff. So all the stuff we've been talking about, like how to how to fuel your body and like how you know how you can focus on health goals that aren't weight centered um, mm-hmm. from a from a dietitian perspective. So I I. I find that really helpful. I work with dietitians like every day. So I really value their, their insights. Yeah. Do you think it's like something that everybody would benefit from going to speak with a dietitian or is it really geared Um, towards a specific type of person with a specific type of need? I mean, I'm a little biased, but I think (laughs) it would be helpful. But then again, I'm, I'm definitely biased towards like anti-diet dietitians and people have like different like, um, cause I know like personally, that's like what I would find most helpful and what my patients would find most helpful is this like anti, but I also recognize that like, you know, like everybody has, um, you know, everybody might find different things helpful. Um, yeah. I mean, like you said, and like we were saying earlier, like, I don't, I think no one, um, no one kind of teaches you what yeah, to eat exactly. growing up. So yeah. And again, like diet, you know, dietitians are like, a, um, a lot of people don't know the differences between a dietitian and a nutritionist too. I don't. Yeah. Can you share? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, a dietitian um, is someone that's like been in a master's program, gone to, um, gone to school, done an internship. Um, uh, whereas a, a nutritionist is not a protected term. So you can like, you and I could just call ourselves a nutritionist, but again, I don't want to like, you know, I, like, I think people like have their place and nutritionists can be really helpful, but yeah. So they, they, but it's definitely like different levels of education and training too. So kind of knowing that. And, um, I always look at too, like, okay, like what is this, like, especially on Instagram and social media, like, what is this person kind of trying to sell me? Like, are they trying to say like, mm-hmm. Oh, like you should go on the shake diet and then mm-hmm. they sell the shake diet. Like that's mm-hmm. a little suspicious, you know? Yes. So, yes. Yeah. That's a good hot so. tip. <laughs> yeah. yeah so follow the money a little bit but um but no to, to circle back I mean I definitely think you know if that's something people feel like they could benefit from like I think dietitians have so much knowledge to offer and a lot of times it's a resource like people don't necessarily like think of but um yeah so yeah because I think you know as you know when we're younger obviously we we can't control the education that you know what we learn in school but as adults, we really do have the power to take that education into our own hands and to tap into some of these resources that maybe, you know, we were unaware of before, or we're just learning about for the first time and do, you know, be our own guru and and get our own information. And I think there's just so much of it out there that being able to speak to, you know, a professional who can sit down with you and really map out, you know, what it is that your needs are might be a beneficial resource for people to tap into. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think so. I would think so. Yeah. Amazing. I'm I'm biased. I'm biased. (laughs) Yeah. Uh. Before we um, wrap up, is there anything that you want to leave our audience with any kind of overarching tips or tricks, any advice, maybe some, some amazing advice that you've heard along the way in your journey that you wanted to pass along? Yeah, I think, I think for me, like what helped me a lot in healing, you know, my own body image and, um, just becoming more like confident in the world was looking at like, okay, who is like 
profiting from me being like insecure and like having a poor body image and like also like just noticing like the hypocrisy and the complete inconsistencies of like societal like expectations of like what like beauty is or like a quote good body is and just like realizing like how like like for example I'll give you an example so like I remember growing up so I have like full lips right these are natural and I remember growing up it was like not cool to have full lips it was like the 90s and it was like it was a terrible era for body image and like and it was not cool and like I remember Angelina Jolie did and it was like kind of seen as weird and then all of a sudden like 10 or 15 or like (laughs) in the 2010s it was like everyone was getting lip fillers and like people were asking me like oh like where'd you get your fillers and I was like I didn't but also like beauty standards are so temperamental you know and like so it's just I think um I don't know I think just really like learning to learning to like have a relationship with your body and with food that where you can kind of shut out that societal noise is really important and like 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 do activities that help you connect to your body and you know, really find what kind of diet and relationship with food works for you because the, I just think there's so much external noise and like, it's the noise wants to get to you to get you to buy things. Right. So I think mm-hmm. the more you can like cultivate this relationship with yourself that can like shut that out, the like better off you'll be. It's such a good point because I mean, it kind of taps a little bit into like the beauty industry too, where, and even like yeah. the fashion industry, right. Where it's like, with trends, the pendulum always swings. And I even think about it with like eyebrows, how like it used to be so cool to have this like really, really thin eyebrow. And now everybody has these thin eyebrows. And now what they're marketing to us is like these thick, full, bushy eyebrows (laughs) and all these different, you know, products and beauty (laughs) techniques. And you could probably map that out or chart that out with almost any thing that is cool or relevant or whatever, you know, however you want to classify it um, as good, right? By society now, at one point, it probably wasn't. Um, So I I like that it's almost like this, like, feeling of intuitive eating, but also for like intuitive, like beauty, you know, or even Mm. like intuitive, like (laughs) style. (laughs) Yeah, we can coin a term for every industry. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, there you go. Well, it was so good to chat with you, Courtney. Thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your story and a little bit more about your process. I think you offer so much value and thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Yeah, no, of course. Thank you for having me. I'll of keep course. following all your creative endeavors on on Instagram. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to the Ola Guapa podcast. I hope you gained as much value and inspiration from today's episode as I did. If you love what you heard, please make sure you rate and review this episode wherever you're listening. It really helps to spread episodes like this one to other creatives looking for their daily dose of inspiration, and I would be forever grateful. But before we go, make sure you head to olaguapa.com to discover my very own passion project, Guapa, a small batch, slow fashion line. Each piece from the collection is artist-made in San Diego, California, and designed to inspire your next creative adventure. Swim, sweat, street, or studio. With that, have a beautiful week, Wappas, and as always, sending you tons of inspiration and lots and lots of love.